Hello, and welcome to Frontline Gastroenterology Podcasts. My name is Dr. Sonny Radju, Trainee Associate Editor at Frontline Gastroenterology. Today I'm joined by the brilliant Professor Andrew Hopper from the University of Sheffield. Professor Hopper has a specialist interest in the pancreas and upper GI pathology. He has recently authored the review paper, Practical Guide to the Management of Chronic Pancreatitis, available for free in Frontline Gastroenterology now. So, Professor, I understand you've wrote a paper on chronic pancreatitis. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Thanks, Sonny. We aim to give a review article on the current management and up-to-date issues in chronic pancreatitis. I think what we really wanted to do was try and aim this to be gauged at gastroenterologists for a go-to guide of issues regarding diagnosis, issues regarding management, and then long-term follow-up of these patients. The pancreas is an organ which sometimes gets a little bit lost between specialties. When you're a pancreatologist, you work as a multidisciplinary team between surgeons, dietitians, gastroenterologists, and um, many other specialties. And it kind of the overlap between this um, means sometimes people take less ownership of the pancreas as an organ. Therefore, I think it's really important, especially with the curriculum gaps that we have in gastroenterology training, to make sure that we as gastroenterologists take ownership of pancreatic problems. And this issue in general, with all the other articles that were put into it, um, helps us with that. This issue in particular on chronic pancreatitis, I think really wants us to prove awareness of the disease, the condition, and just make sure that there are many other causes and management issues that we can help engage with as gastroenterologists. Right. So just thinking a bit about your paper, you said there's, there's a bit of a mismatch between the incidence and prevalence of chronic pancreatitis. Can you tell me a bit more about this? Yes, of course. This is something we've done quite a bit of work on and the global prevalence of um, chronic pancreatitis is variable, but really ends up between 10 and 50 per 100,000 um, population. However, if you actually look into it and actually start looking for chronic pancreatitis and early changes of chronic pancreatitis, you seem to have much higher prevalence. This is especially prevalent in post-mortem studies where you see anatomical chronic pancreatitic changes such as calcium, uh, deposition, dilated ducts, and fibrosis on histopathology specimens, which gives the prevalence of 13%. So a large, you know, high-fold instance. So therefore, I think what we're doing is not really looking for it or not thinking about it, and therefore, the incidence doesn't increase until you get to very end-stage conditions where people are presenting with lots of chronic pain and malnutrition, the classic end-stage chronic pancreatitis. So I want to improve my recognition. What sort of things should I be thinking about when I'm seeing patients? I think there's two things that's important is to think about the exocrine and endocrine function of your pancreas. Mainly from a gastroenterologist's point of view is we tend to hit issues with the exocrine function. So chronic pancreatitis, although its exocrine function is classically associated with the later stages. We've shown recently that there's a lot more evidence that uh, enzyme insufficiency uh, occurs um, a lot earlier. And if you actually think about the causes for irritable bowel syndrome, for example, especially diarrhea predominant, change in bowel habit, um, and we actually look for um, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency with such basic tests such as even a faecal elastase, you can find early changes um, and early evidence of chronic pancreatitis. The second thing is um, being aware of causes of abdominal pain and abdominal discomfort. 
and realizing that the um, imaging tests for uh, pancreatitis really requires a CT scan. Um, the pancreatitis is, is obscured from ultrasound imaging by the air in the stomach. So therefore, that's the reason why you always get the ultrasound report saying pancreas not really well visualized. So that unfortunately, therefore, the only way really to look at the pancreas would be a CT scan or with an endoscopic ultrasound um, uh, procedure. Okay. So thinking about the risk factors, you mentioned one that is, is quite prevalent, alcohol. Given its prevalence, why is the chronic pancreatitis not even more common? Well, I think it probably is. Um, there's two things that are really quite important when we deal with alcohol is to think about the people who have a high alcohol intake. So that's based on the units per week um, definition. And then there's people who are alcohol dependent. And we sometimes associate chronic pancreatitis being associated with the group of alcohol dependence. But the what we seem to find more and more is that patients with just a higher alcohol intake, either younger in life or as they go through life, have a genetic susceptibility to higher alcohol intakes, which makes them develop chronic or recurrent pancreatitis uh, changes in their pancreas. And it's these people that really we're just trying to target. So taking an alcohol history, it's not a case of as uh, someone dependent on alcohol. It's really very, been very keen about the high alcohol intake. And if that's the case, there's a major risk factor for developing pancreatitis. And it's that group really that we try and target to try and reduce down because that's the successful group. So thinking of some of these patients, I guess the aim is to try and catch them as early as we can. Is there anything you can advise on making a diagnosis at an earlier phase? It's one of these things where if you think about it, you can make the diagnosis earlier. And we see that with a lot of conditions. We talk about chronic pancreatitis being another iceberg condition where we know if we actually screen people or do a population prevalence, uh, there's a much bigger prevalence than we are aware of clinically. And this is the iceberg phenomenon we've seen with many other conditions. With this condition, if we think about it, so we're thinking about change of bowel habit, malnutrition and you know, low weight loss, um, uh, abdominal pains, um, can all really just think about it well and just having an, a normal gastroscopy and a normal ultrasound think pancreas if you think it you'll pick up a lot more cases now we don't want to be CTing everybody of course because it's quite an invasive test from the radiology point of view um, but the um, but even just looking for um, change in bowel habit due to exocrine insufficiency with a stool test um, can be you know have a higher yield and in a study we did looking at two centres in the UK looking at patients coming to the gastroenterology clinic with irritable bowel symptoms. If we actually tested with faecal elastase, we found up to 13% of patients with changing bowel habit, diarrhea, weight loss, steatorrhea, um, could be identified as having exocrine insufficiency and early changes of chronic pancreatitis. So you mentioned um, some of the symptoms that these patients have, like weight loss. Um, how do I decide not to refer these patients for an urgent investigation and when should I think about discussing it with an MDT because obviously there is a risk of an underlying pancreatic cancer with some of these symptoms. I don't want to refer everybody to the urgent list but how do I decide who to refer and who not to? Yeah, you're right. What we don't want to do is start a big deluge of testing and, and refers to um, MDTs but the test to look for pancreatic cancer is a CT scan and that's a diagnostic test and it's the most sensitive diagnostic test for them. Therefore, if you suspect pancreatic pathology, whether it be weight loss um, or jaundice or um, uh, you know, significant ongoing epigastric pain, 
you would order a CT scan and with a pancreatic protocol CT would detect a counterfeit there. If that point on the CT report should be out to help tell the difference or at least raise the suspicion of a pancreatic cancer and at that point that's when you would refer with the CT report. So would you advise that all CTs are done urgent at that point or could they be routine? Oh I see. So, so for the urgency from the CT report would be weight loss or jaundice would make it very urgent. The epigastric pain can be chronic and obviously if the patient's been going on with that without weight loss then it would be something that would be more routine that if you investigate for chronic pancreatitis for example. Okay, so I get my CT scan and it supports the diagnosis. When should I start thinking about referring to surgeons? Well there's special different as I mentioned right at the beginning of the, um, the cast that there were big teams sometimes and different specialties in different hospitals will have a surgeon who's got an interest in chronic pancreatitis or a physician and or an ERC pierced and so on for an endoscopist and what we need to do is get the patient to have a multidisciplinary assessment and the um, by the specialist who looks after the chronic pancreatitis in that hospital or secondary care environment. Now from surgical specifics is that um, for patients to benefit from an actual operation from chronic pancreatitis they need to have a couple of uh, uh, I suppose important features to, to know. First of all the surgery for chronic pancreatitis is very invasive it's high risk as well and these are usual patients with significant um, head of pancreas lesions uh, or chronic changes with duct dilatation beyond it. Sometimes very large stones that can't be removed endoscopically would be a surgical indication as well. To perform surgery in that area is highly invasive as I just mentioned, uh, high risk of bleeding. And so therefore their nutritional support beforehand needs to be optimised. Patients presenting at this point have usually had chronic pain, uh, especially after eating and um, poor nutrition from digestive um, secondary complications of their pancreatic function and therefore will need to be seriously considered for nutritional support before engaging in such you know, major surgery. However, if this is the case, it can be helped. Patients can be bridged for surgery or to decide if surgery will be a benefit sometimes by placing a pancreatic stent um, beforehand. And this is something that the team would be involved in um, a, a multidisciplinary discussion. So you've mentioned uh, an MDT approach to these patients. You've mentioned a bit about nutrition, about how the surgeons need to be involved at certain points. Are there any measurable outcome benefits from referring to an MDT as opposed to a gastroenterologist managing them by themselves? I think the main thing is um, that uh, you can manage the patients by yourself. I, I think the problem is, is that the pancreas requires a multidisciplinary approach. And um, if you have the communication between the surgical endoscopy physician and dietetic team need to be constant about every patient and to um, support that network for example we have a benign MDT um, once two to three times a week where we discuss these cases and without that MDT setting for us it can be very difficult the patients need multiple appointments um, multiple contacts with the hospital and um, the success of this is really determined by um, communication between different specialties. So you've mentioned that um, a lot of these patients need a lot of hospital contact. Um, is there any role of, of primary care for these patients? Can anything be moved towards there or is there anything that, that you hope that they will do before they come to you? Yeah, I think there's definite um, 
benefit from primary care involvement. I think there's two things where primary care can take over the management after the initial assessment and diagnosis, i.e. Uh, complications are excluded, a pancreatic cancer is excluded and support is initialised, whether that be uh, with enzyme supplementation, which especially in the Sheffield region, it's an orange alert um, uh, on the BNF, which means that it needs prescribing by secondary care first and then primary care continue the prescription on the advice of the um, hospital and that's usually the, what the setup uh, things are. I think at that point they could do with maybe a one to two year follow-up just checking on how they're doing with the GP being involved with this list of instructions and really that's the idea of the um, the, the care bundle follow-up um, that we can able to um, you know warn GPs that say if changes in symptoms, weight, nutrition you could be referred back in at an earlier date. Um, so it's similar really as uh, we manage a lot of chronic conditions such as inflammatory bowel or um, celiac disease, whereas when there's a seen change in symptoms, GPs and primary care are able to refer back to secondary care as required with information that we're given. Obviously the patients we discussed earlier that need surgical support and dietetic support tend to need secondary care um, constant management. Okay. You mentioned the care bundle. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I think really that's quite a helpful thing really for both secondary care physicians and then as I said earlier that um, advising primary care um, to, to take management forward in the community without multiple follow-up appointments and it kind of pulls together really all the different um, uh, evidence that's being collected on chronic pancreatitis whether they looks at diagnosis which um, tests we should be doing the nutritional um, assessment what tests we should be doing um, and, and then really from follow-up, how we should keep an eye on patients as well. I think really then there's things to look for with regards on um, you know, warning signs regarding um, whether they're losing, becoming osteopenic, um, uh, whether they're becoming malnourished or whether they're developing worsening pain and ways to intervene in that at an earlier stage rather than having to deal with quite significant complications and the significant mortality that is associated with chronic pancreatitis if it's left to continue. So many of our readership are gastroenterologists. Can you give uh, just a brief explanation of what type 3C diabetes is? Yeah, so um, type 3C diabetes, I think if you speak to a lot of community diabetic teams are not aware of the condition either. Essentially, it gets misinterpreted as type 1. Um, therefore, it's an insulin-dependent diabetes, which is a consequence of having pancreatic destruction, i.e. Um, either post-surgery or post-pancreatitis. And therefore you've lost pancreatic parenchyma um, through either natural or surgical causes. This leads to two issues, which um, can mean it becomes very brittle. And at the same time as trying to treat the diabetes, you've got to take into account that the digestive system itself has been changed, i.e. you may have had pancreatic surgery, for example, after a Whipple's procedure for pancreatic cancer or a significant pancreatic um, pan chronic pancreatitis, you um, will digest food differently. You'll have, uh, as because your small bowel is now attached to part of your stomach in a different way, and therefore you also get mismatch of mixing with pancreatic uh, exocrine uh, secretion, and therefore you'll pass food quicker, you'll lose. Uh, CCK, stimulation of your pancreas because of the duodenum being removed and things and all these considerations need to take in place. So therefore it's a brittle type 1 diabetes but also with 
unpredictable um, carbohydrate and nutritional response because of the digestion being taken as well. And therefore these factors all need to be taken into account, especially when you, maybe even on an individual basis for the patient, depending on what surgery or where the inflammation's occurred in the pancreas. Now you mentioned uh, a lot of these patients have obstructions and uh, one of the uh, treatments is self-expanding metal stent. Hmm. Are they safe in MRIs? Yes, most self-expanding metal stents and most metal stents put in now are um, safe in MRI. We, you tend to get a card when you have a, a stent placed um, that you can keep with you and depend uh, on with the instructions of what Tesla type MRI strength machine you've you, you use um, um, is, is what it's being tested to and most stents now are universally used in MRI scans however the patient will get a card to carry them uh, while they have that stent in to make sure that that's signed off because the usual response would be that no unless it's checked we can't do an MRI however they're safe once the information has been given if you see what I mean so the main thing is when we put stents in the patients tend to carry a card okay Professor, that was brilliant. Thank you very much. So just to conclude, have you got any final remarks or anything you'd like to highlight? No, I'm obviously welcome to be contacted um, regarding any questions about the paper. Um, I think we're really pleased that it's um, um, been published by Frontline Gastroenterology because the readership that we wanted to get it to um, was the gastroenterology vaccine team. And uh, we hope that um, you know, we'll continue increasing the awareness of the condition as well with the team. And I'd like to thank my fellows, uh, Dr. Jalal and Dr. Campbell, for their contribution to the article, of course, as well. Okay, that was brilliant. I think on behalf of the readership, I'd just like to say thank you very much.